Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. You see this guy? This is uh, this is your cousin Hezekiah Jackson. You didn't know that you have a cousin, but uh, he's from rural uh, Birmingham, Alabama, down in the U.S. Okay, so Hezekiah Jackson's your cousin, and you didn't know this that, but he's actually moving to Hamilton in a few months. Okay, now if you don't know. Uh, Alabama has a bit of a culture, right? Especially in the rural areas. It's, you know, you're in the Bible Belt, you're pro-gun, white, uh, Republican, you know, pretty conservative, Appalachian Mountain kind of culture, okay? Also, pretty complicated history with racism, all right? Is it fair to say that there's some cultural differences between uh, rural Birmingham, Alabama, and... Hamilton, Ontario. Are there some differences? Yeah, I bet like if we took the time, you could, you'd have all kinds of things you, you could share about ways that Hamilton's culture is different from the culture of like rural Birmingham. You know, we've got a local language that's kind of distinct. We've got some local values. We've got some, we've even got a local like dress code. Like if Hamilton, we've got this thing called the summer shawl. You know what I'm talking about? The, the summer shawl, it's that, it's when a, it's when a guy walks around on the sidewalk and he's got a t-shirt that he's put on except he didn't put his arms through the the armholes he's just got his head through the head hole and it kind of looks like a a, kind of looks like a shawl you know so that's the summer shawl in Hamilton we've got a bit of a dress code so there's other ways though but but yeah like the culture of Hamilton is distinct from the culture of of Birmingham and you know we would probably agree there are some aspects of Hamilton's culture that are great there's also some aspects that we would have we would want to have nothing to do with. Okay, some that are great, some we would have nothing to do with, but there are some aspects of Hamilton's culture that, you know, with a bit of creativity, with a little bit of vision, they could be redeemed and repurposed. You know? And and you know, we could spend weeks preparing Hezekiah to come and, and arrive here in Hamilton, but the, it's interesting that we all know that the best thing for him is just to get here and to experience it for himself, right? Just arrive and, and, and experience it for himself, right? Yeah, now, suppose we're not talking about a person coming to Hamilton, but we're talking about a person coming to Jesus. Like, how much orientation do they need? Is that even something that we, we can do? Is that something that we can give a person? You know, that's something that, uh, that the church has debated since day one. Like, can a person meet Christ without first being Christianized? Or they might ask it this way, which parts of our culture are compatible with the gospel? Which parts are are harmful? And which are the parts that can be redeemed? Recently, I I came across a pastor named uh, Joe Thorne. He says that as ambassadors of Jesus in a secular culture, we need to uh, reject what is evil. We need to receive what is good. We need to redeem what is broken and lost. He says, our culture is not one thing. It is made up of hundreds of things, bad and good, that demand our attention. I really like that idea that our culture culture isn't one thing. Some parts are bad, some parts are good, and, and they can be redeemed. I, really, I think that's really helpful, actually. Um, I've, I've also been helped by uh, a theologian named Ed Stetzer from, from the U.S. who says that in any given culture, we can find both the Imago Dei, which is the image of God, and we can find idols because all people are made in God's image and 
All people reflect that reality in some ways, but also all people are also sinners. Some parts of a culture can be considered good, while others must be seen as corrupt. And it seems to me, if we get those ideas reversed, it is disaster for the church. Like if we treat the good parts of a culture like they're corrupt, or if we treat the corrupt parts of the culture like they are good, that is just not going to turn out good for the church. You know what I'm saying? And, and that's what today's Holy Ghost story is about. It is about a debate over the role that, it, that the church should play in a culture. Okay? And, and it actually kind of reads like a courtroom drama. Like, like how many of us like a good courtroom drama? You know, you, you got, you, yeah, you got your witnesses, you've got your conflicting testimony, and then there's new evidence, and then the tension sort of rises, and then boom, there's the climax because the judge gives the verdict. Well, this story kind of reads like that, except it's instead of these humans, it's, it's actually the Holy Spirit himself who's on trial. And there are people who are bringing charges against him. There are, it's like there are people who are calling the Holy Spirit's work into question. The Holy Spirit himself. Okay? And, and it seems to me this is, a, this is a pretty helpful story, especially for those of us who are wrestling with how uh, to engage the culture and, and whether we even can engage the culture. And so what I'd like to do is, is kind of hear from each of the people in the story as though they are witnesses in, in a court case. And then we're just going to ask, what changed? Now, I'll, I'll pause here and just say that this may raise some questions that I don't have the time to answer in the, the, the message itself. So there's a, a phone number at the bottom of the screen. You are welcome, as always, to text your questions in, and then we'll create some time and space at the end of the gathering for me to do my best and answer those. So let's get started. We'll call the first witness. All right, the first witness is Paul and Barnabas. And, and, uh, and so out in the streets... These guys, Paul and Barnabas, they've, they find some Jewish teachers who disagree with their good news preaching. Right? In verse 2 here of chapter 15, we read that there's serious argument and debate among them. Other versions say that it's a sharp dispute, or there's no small dissension between them, or that they argued vehemently. Okay, so what we're supposed to see is that there is a sharp conflict and disagreement, okay? And they they can't settle it themselves. And so they decide to meet in Jerusalem to settle the matter at a council. And on the way, Paul and Barnabas make a few stops in order to explain to other people what they've seen. And in verse 3, it says that, that, they, that as they do, they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. Pretty cool, right? So then in verse 4, when they arrive at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done among them. So they're reporting it. And their report is, you guys, we've seen it with our own eyes that Gentiles, Gentiles are meeting Jesus and they're receiving the Spirit just like we did. And and, and he didn't wait for them to become Jewish first. Like the Spirit didn't wait for them to figure out how to obey the Jewish law before he decided to get a hold of these Gentile believers. So clearly, you guys, clearly God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and not by works of the law. And for the listeners, oh my goodness, that sounds bananas. Especially if we consult the second set of witnesses. The second set of witnesses, the Judaizers. 
So who are the Judaizers? Well, in some versions refer to the Judaizers. These are Jewish Christians who are going around teaching the Gentiles that unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, that's their preaching. That's their good news. Um, and in verse 5, they even say that it's necessary. Like, a, a, like being circumcised, obeying the law, it is, it's necessary. Now, it's, we need to be careful here for a minute because these guys believe in Jesus. They recognize Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus died for the Gentiles. But they believe that Gentile culture is itself evil. They believe that Gentiles need to be Christianized first. In order to be Christianized, in order to be ready to, to join Jesus, they need to be Judaized. They need to learn how to practice the Jewish culture. That's why he wants, they want them to be circumcised. It, because circumcision is a, is a symbolic act that shows that they've taken off that culture, they've put on the, the right culture, which is Jesus' culture, and Jesus' culture was Jewish. And, and I think it's important to acknowledge that because I think it's easy for, for us to look at these guys as sort of one-dimensional, heartless legalists and fundamentalists. I don't see it that way at all. To me, the concern of these guys is that the apostles have watered down the gospel and they've compromised with the culture and they've given the Gentiles this like false sense of security. And so I, ho- I hope that you see the Judaizers actually care about the Gentiles. They actually care about what happens to the Gentiles. And, and, and so here we need to understand both sides have a point. Okay? Both sides have a point. That's why this is a conversation and not just a one-way correction. That's why there's debate happening in this passage. And it goes back and forth for a long time until up pops Peter, the third witness. Okay, Peter's the third witness, and he shares his own testimony in the court case. And Peter's had a turning point of his own. If you remember Cornelius in chapter 10, and Peter saw it with his own eyes. Guys, God doesn't play favorites. God gives his spirit equally to Jews and to Gentiles. And it turns out there is no right culture. There is no like advantage to being Jewish. And so, so Peter asks the Judaizers, you guys... Why are you testing God, in verse 10, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? In other words, you guys, we are asking the Gentiles to meet a standard that we failed to meet. Like, that's testing God. That's not going to work out so good for us, okay? Now, you might go, how is that testing God? Well, it's a test because all the Jews at all times, failed to keep the law. Like, they rejected God in lots of ways, and yet God was merciful, and God has forgiven those Jews through Messiah. And the Judaizers think, well, we tried and failed, and God forgave us, so he's probably going to forgive them too, but they won't, he won't forgive them if they don't try. So they've got to try. They've got to put some effort into this thing. And, and that's testing God. That's testing God. That's not Christianity. That's actually the definition of religion. Because religion says, try your best, put in a solid effort, God will meet you halfway. Right? Isn't that what religion says? Religion says, do lots of good things, avoid the bad things, and God is going to be so impressed that he will have to forgive you. Like, you'll have no choice. 
Except that's not how this works. The gospel is, you know what? Every, every effort, every iota of, of work and effort that you put into impressing God is itself colored by sin. Because there's pride and there's self-righteousness. And we, we don't earn God's approval. It has to be given to us. And it has been. Because Jesus lived a perfect life. He never sinned. And the gospel says, you guys, even the effort that you put into trying to impress God is colored by sin. Like there's pride in it. And there's self-righteousness in it. And, and, and we can't earn God's approval that way. It's, God's approval has to be given to us. And it actually has been. Because check this out. God, Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus never sinned. And the gospel says he gives us his life. Jesus gives us his life. On the cross, we died with him. At Easter, we were raised with him. And so now, when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. That's what he sees when he looks at you. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. And that is not something that we can earn with our striving and effort. It is a gift by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and not through works of the law. Now, Paul and Barnabas knew that. Peter, the apostle, knew that. Even the Judaizers know it, except that it feels too good to be true. And that's where everybody arrives. And that is when James pops up, and James offers his own verdict. Now, I imagine he's quite sympathetic to the Judaizers, actually. He's Jesus' brother, after all. He, he loves the law. He's even, he's even traditionally called um, St. Saint ja- James the Just. This is a guy who knows his Bible super well. And now that he's heard all the witnesses, Paul and Barnabas, the Judaizers, Peter, now he's like, you guys, this must be what the prophet Amos meant. God is welcoming all the peoples. Even, verse 17, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord. And so James has, a, has made a decision. That's what's going on here. That moment that God was talking about in Amos, that has arrived. And so now they're going to write a letter to all the affected towns. And they're going to say, essentially, to the Jews, they're going to say, look, you Jewish people, don't make it any harder for the Gentiles to get inside. And in that same letter... The message to the Gentiles is essentially, you guys, don't make it any any easier for the Jews to stay outside. All right? And so they send the letter. And in verse 31, there's rejoicing and there's encouragement and peace. Why? Why is that the answer to the letter? Because, you know, it seems to me, in our culture, we might expect that the council's decision should have been, that's it. Jewish culture has to end. Jewish culture has failed. Look at all the harm that it did. So we got to cancel it. From here on, the only true Christian is a Gentile Christian. No more Jewish Christians allowed. That's what some of us might expect that James's decision is going to be, but that's not his answer. In fact, that would just be the same old legalism, but reversed. Okay, just reversed. You see, the Judaizers say the way to Jesus is through our Jewish culture. And we know that that's not true. But if we say, if we reverse it and we say that the way, to, the, the way to Jesus is to abandon our Jewish culture and cancel it, well, that's not true either. 
Because Jewish culture isn't the problem. And at the end of the story, verse 28, the Holy Spirit himself has made a decision. And that decision comes in two parts. There's like two conclusions here, okay? The first is culture doesn't matter. Okay, in some ways, culture doesn't matter. The letter says, the Judaizers were wrong to trouble you. We never sent them. So circumcision isn't required. You guys, you can relax. We don't expect Gentiles to bear that burden. And, and so you can just, you can come to Jesus as you are. In fact, from here on, no one is excluded on the basis of their culture. If you're, if you're a Jew, that's fine. Be the most gospel-driven, gracious, spirit-filled Jew you can be. But if you come from an indigenous or an African or a Western or an Arab culture, you are at no disadvantage. In God's kingdom, there is no right culture. They all belong because culture doesn't matter. Culture doesn't matter. Now, at the same time, a second thing is decided at the Jerusalem Council. And that second decision is that cultural choices really matter. Okay? Culture doesn't matter, but cultural choices really matter. Because the letter tells the Gentile disciples that there are actually some cultural practices that are now, they're just off limits for you if you're a follower of Jesus. Like, come on, guys. In case, like in case there's any confusion, you can't worship idols to the glory of God. And so it, it has a word against idolatry. You, you can't chug blood with the temple priest to the glory of God. You just, it just can't be done, okay? And so there's a word in there about blood. And, so, and, and, and the message here is, if you guys, if, you ha- if we hang out at the temple of Apollo, and we're wearing our, like, Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt, and we've got a temple prostitute on each arm, well, that says something, Okay? That says something to our unbelieving neighbor about Jesus. And it's not helpful. It's not beneficial. It's not permissible. And that's not legalism. We're not being legalistic. That's, we're being, that's discipleship, guys. Okay? Now, do you see what's happened here? After the Jerusalem Council, now we know the, the Holy Spirit doesn't care which culture we come from. He really cares about how we choose to engage the culture. Okay? In other words, the Spirit doesn't invite us to repent of culture. He invites us to repent of sin and to use culture to glorify Jesus. Let me say that again, because I just think that's really important. The Spirit doesn't ask us to repent of our culture. He asks us to repent of sin and to use our culture to glorify Jesus. That's the Spirit's decision. And I, you know, maybe we need to ask, like, that was the solution. Did it, did it stay solved? Like, we, we could think of the example of maybe maybe alcohol. You know, a couple of generations ago, um, churches in our setting, in our, in our uh, context, even here in Hamilton, had strict rules for their members uh, about their behavior. In fact, in the, the Bible here up front on the table, there's a page called a, um, a temperance pledge. You can sign, and, uh, and by signing this page, you promise not to drink alcohol or fermented drink. And so things like drinking, things like smoking, things like gambling, they're just not allowed. Well, why? Because it was assumed in those days that you can't possibly drink beer to the glory of God. You can't drink wine to the glory of God. You can't enjoy a cigar or play a game of poker to the glory of God. These things are clearly sinful. 
And, and, and lots of people in those days agreed with that. And lots of people conformed. But what if you're like a, maybe an Italian or a Maltese Roman Catholic who comes to faith in Jesus and you drank red wine like at basically every meal since you were a kid? Okay, what, if, what, if, what about you? Like you basically, your parents had red wine in your, your bottle as a baby. Like, are we saying that it was evil to drink that, that wine? That was sin? Well, guess what? It turns out God never said that. There are good reasons, just to be clear, there are good reasons why a person might choose not to drink. But in our culture, lots of people don't drink and it has nothing to do with Jesus. And so if you, if you abstain from alcohol, that's fine. God bless you. But that doesn't prove that you're a Christian. Right? Isn't that true? And so at the end of the day, uh, on, on this side of the Jerusalem Council, we know that culture is neither good nor is culture bad. The Spirit doesn't ask us to repent of our culture. He invites us to repent of sin and to use culture to make Jesus look good and enjoy him. Enjoy him. And it is so important that we keep that straight. The Spirit doesn't ask us to repent of our culture. He invites us to repent of sin. Let's keep that straight, okay? Okay. And so as we close, what I want to do is drill into this a little bit by naming some of the ways that we might join the Spirit and continue the work that he was doing in the Jerusalem Council in our own context. I've got four choices that I think we should make. Think of these as four choices for the church uh, post-Jerusalem Council, okay? The first choice is this. We actually can work things out after all. We actually, we can come to peace and we can be reconciled after all. We can actually do that. Like, look what happened when the Christians came to the table with a problem and when they refused to leave the table until the matter is resolved. You see what happens here? Isn't that beautiful? You've got, at the Jerusalem Council, you've got apostles, elders, church leaders, and they agree on a location and a time and they've, got, they've agreed that they've got James who's going to be their judge. And what they don't do at the Jerusalem Council is they don't agree to disagree, right? They listen, they ask questions, they debate. And yeah, at times it got heated, but it worked and it was a win-win. And that, that makes me think, what issues could we resolve today if we took that approach? Could you imagine a, like a Jerusalem council on matters of social justice or poverty or race or maybe like Calvinism or Reformed doctrine or like, women's ordination or like or sexuality like i bet if we agree if we agreed and committed to come to the table and not leave until we've figured it out i bet we might make some progress actually and so after the jerusalem council one of the things we see is christians actually can resolve their disputes if we agree to talk it out we actually can we can work things out after all. I think that's really important. A second choice that I hope that we're going to make after the Jerusalem Council is that there will be no extra hoops. No extra hoops. So this is about uh, the rules for becoming Christian, okay? Now we know, on this side of the Jerusalem Council, now we know we can't Christianize a person into loving Jesus. It's, we, just, we can't do that. We can make people conform like, we know that we can do that. We can make people conform. We can get people to obey rules if we apply enough peer pressure and offer enough incentive and reward on the other side of it. We can do that. 
But our friends and our kids and our neighbors, they have to come to Jesus by choice. They have to come by faith. And if it's not, if they come to Jesus not by choice or by faith, but in order to please us, you know what that means? It means that Jesus isn't their Lord. We are. We are. If it's going to be real, it's got to be the Spirit who does the work. It's got to be He who shifts our saving faith off of ourselves and onto Jesus. It's got to be He who helps us fight temptation. It's got to be He who gives us a new heart that loves God and loves others. Those are things that you and I, we can't do that on our own. That is way beyond what you and I can do. And so again, it seems to me one of the ways that we'll continue the Spirit's work is if we refuse to make it any harder to come to Jesus than it already is. If they believe, that's enough. If they've taken up their cross to follow Jesus, that's enough. And so no more man-made hoops to jump through. I think that's an important choice on this side of the Jerusalem Council. And the third one is this, that there will be no needless offense. We will offer no needless offense. This is about being ambassadors of Jesus. All right, so, so maybe I'm not bowing down to idols at a temple. All right, maybe I'm not drinking blood. But what if my cultural choices have alienated people from Jesus? Like, what if I'm the reason that there are people out there who look at Jesus and say, like, no thanks. Like, I would actually, I would hate that. I would hate to be the one who offers a needless offense. But I do know that it happens. You know, I know that, I know that there are some Christian leaders who are upset about, for example, like, the Me Too movement. And they're upset about cancel culture. I know about a pastor who was fired when it came out that he had abused someone in his church about 30 years before. 30 years. And I, I, know, I know pastors, um, I, I have friends who are pastors who, who hear stories like that and they responded with like, that is not fair. Like none of us is safe. And, and to that, I would just want to say like, you know what? If you're a Christian, not just a pastor, but if you're a Christian, you're accountable for your actions. That's not unfair. You know what's not fair? What's not fair is shepherds who turn out to be wolves. To me, that's unfair. To me, the gospel is offensive enough. You don't need to make it any harder by being a narcissistic, power-hungry jerk. That's not what you need. That's what you, you don't need that from me, right? And so I think one of the ways we'll continue the Spirit's work uh, that he began at the Jerusalem Council is if, the, you and I, is if you and I are known for being safe, and, and present, and attentive, and generous, and counterculturally loving neighbors who offer no needless offense. I'm not saying being inoffensive. I'm not saying, I'm saying, we're, I'm not saying that we have no uh, rough edges. I'm saying that we are just, we're not going to needlessly offend people, okay? And the fourth and the final choice is this, that we're free to choose. On this side of the Jerusalem Council, we now know we're gonna. We're we are free to choose. It's about it's about freedom in Christ. We're free to choose. Like on this side of the Jerusalem Council, we know culture can be used for good or evil, but it's up to us to make good choices. And and we're already doing this, by the way. Like, like like what's the for example? What is the right cultural choice around schooling? Suppose we take that question. What's the right choice to make culturally around schooling? Is, is there one? Like, I know that in this church, in Benediction Church, we've got families who, who homeschool their children. 
We've got some families who go to public school. We've got some families who went to Christian school. Uh, we've, got, we've got some families who were themselves raised going to Catholic school. Why don't we fight about this? Why isn't this a point of tension and conflict for us? Because sometimes it's not a choice between good versus evil. Sometimes it's a choice between many imperfect options. Isn't that right? And so in a community, there's grace and we are free to choose. There's grace. On the other hand, some things that are acceptable in our culture are actually off limits for the Christian because they're just wrong. They're just wrong. There are some things that are just wrong. We need to acknowledge that. Like there is, for example, there is just there is no way to redeem pornography. You you cannot re, you know abuse a child to the glory of God. You cannot exploit your spouse to the glory of God. There is no excuse for that. There are some things that are just sinful and evil, and God has told us what those are in his word. We don't need to think about it. God has told us what those things are in his word. Now, there are some things that are good. There are some things that are evil. There are some things that are neither good nor evil. They're just neutral. And with a bit of effort and creativity, these things can become a, a means of worship. And, and I'm thinking maybe examples like, like social media, things like money, work, art, even the shell of a dead old church building that's been empty for 20 years can be repurposed with a little bit of effort and creativity can become a means of worship. Do you see that? And so I think we're going to continue what the Spirit did at the Jerusalem Council if we are thoughtful about how we engage with the culture. About how we engage with the culture. We are, you and I, we're free in Christ. We are free to do absolutely anything except sin. Let me say that again. In Christ, we are free to do absolutely anything except sin so that God is glorified, so that you and I flourish, and so that people see Jesus through us. That's why I want to close with with this quote from the Apostle Paul. Listen to this. Paul said, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.